Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, shocking, I know. We'll hear from Behind the News regular Anatole Levin on the bizarre uprising by Yevgeny Prigozhin in Russia, and then from Samuel Bazzi, co-author of a paper on the Confederate diaspora and its effects in the political culture of the recipient locales. The short-lived rebellion by the Wagner group of mercenaries last weekend in Russia was one of the odder stories to come down the wires in some time. Not that the Wagner group itself wasn't an odd story before this past weekend. Its co-founder and current leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, followed a rather unconventional career path. Released from prison in 1990 after serving nine years for robbery, Prigozhin set up a hot dog stand in Leningrad. From that modest beginning, he somehow acquired a series of businesses, including a casino and restaurants, including some high-end ones. He befriended Vladimir Putin in the early 2000s, and by 2012 had a private jet and a sizable yacht to call his own. In 2014, he co-founded the Wagner Group, a mercenary army that fought in Africa and, notably, in Syria. It was active in Ukraine from its founding, assisting Russian forces in the takeover of Crimea and the fighting in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. With last year's invasion, its activities and prominence increased. Prigozhin had been growing more critical of the Russian military leadership, even getting in a few digs at Putin, a dangerous enterprise. In his June 29th substack, Seymour Hirsch quotes an unnamed U.S. intelligence official as saying that Wagner's usefulness to the Russian campaign in Ukraine had declined considerably as the fight shifted from an offensive one to a defensive one. Perhaps Prigo's little tantrum was a protest against his marginalization. Here's Anatole Levin with more. He's the director of the Eurasia program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. In the 1980s and 90s, Anatole covered the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and the wars in Afghanistan, Chechnya, and the Southern Caucasus for the Financial Times and the Times of London. Anatole Levin. What the hell just happened? The ratio of wild speculation to actual knowledge seems unusually high over the last week. What was Prigozhin doing? Was he, to use the old legal phrase, on a frolic of his own? Or is there some broader base for his quasi-coup, if that's even what it was? What did we see? I've been pointing out that, you know, if you look at the history of what have been called coups or attempted coups or, you know, going all the way back, well, to the Middle Ages or probably to the dawn of organized human society, quite a lot of the time what these were were not actually attempts to overthrow the government, kill or exile or imprison the king. They were in the nature of armed demonstrations. The Earl of Watts's name uh, would call up his men and would parade around in an effort to pressure the king into dismissing his rival, the Earl of What's-Her-Face, from court and, you know, giving some of his land and his official positions away. Of course, I mean, that could then turn into a full-scale rebellion, but it wasn't actually intended to, because, of course, full-scale rebellions are extremely risky things. And if you're going for a full-scale rebellion and lose, then uh, you had better... Uh, go into exile pretty quickly, um, or you'll end up in two pieces. So what would happen would be either the king would surrender to the pressure and would indeed get rid of his favourites and uh, bow to the demand of the baron or barons who are in revolt, and then they would go home again and leave the king in place. Now, of course, what might very well happen subsequently is that the king's prestige would have been so damaged by his weakness and cowardice, that he'd be overthrown later by some rival. But that wouldn't be the immediate result. Or the king would stand firm. And in that case, the barons would crawl on their bellies, uh, declaring their loyalty to the king, stand down their men, and maybe go into exile for a while just to make sure of things. And it seems to me that that is what has happened in Russia. It's not clear, and Prigozhin has always denied, that he actually wanted to get rid of Putin. What is clear is that he wanted Putin to get rid of Prigozhin's rivals uh, in the Russian government. I mean, especially the defense minister, Shoigu, and the chief of the general staff, Gerasimov, and replace them with allies of Prigozhin, which would have made Prigozhin, in effect, a kingmaker. But also, by the way, have given Prigozhin an absolutely key role in the eventual succession to Putin. But Putin stood firm. 
in his speech on Saturday, uh, he made clear that he was not going to surrender and that if the rebellion continued, then Prigozhin and the other leaders of Wagner uh, would be, when captured, charged with treason and presumably executed as a result. The other thing that happened was that there has actually been speculation about prior consultation. It didn't make sense for Prigozhin to do what he did unless he thought that he had enough support within the Russian military uh, that the military would split and would at least refuse to fight against him or would come over to his side. He had some reason to, to, to think that because after their truly monstrous incompetence that they've displayed, as well as their corruption. I mean, the Russian high command is not popular, from what I gather, among ordinary Russian officers in the rank and file. But on Saturday morning, General Surovikin, the only really successful Russian commander in Ukraine, for a while the commander-in-chief in Ukraine, but then demoted and made a subordinate to Gerasimov, and the former commander in Syria, where he forged close links with Wagner, uh, now, in a previous speech, Prigozhin had called for Surovikin uh, to replace Gerasimov. So he may may well have, have believed that Surovikin would come over to his side. But no, Surovikin gave an address on social media on Saturday morning, uh, calling on Russian soldiers to remain loyal and calling on Wagner to lay down its arms. And at that point, you know, if Surovikin wasn't going to join the revolt, then no Russian general was. And at that point, Prigozhin really had a, a choice between either really going for broke and attacking Moscow against overwhelming military odds on the other side, and thereby ensuring, in the event of probable defeat, his own death, as well, of course, as the slaughter of so many of his men, or of surrendering on terms. And he surrendered on terms and was allowed to do so by Putin. As to why Prigozhin took this gamble, for months now, and I, I think, you know, motivated by genuine anger, his own and that of his men, at the way in which the war in Ukraine has been conducted or misconducted, Prigozhin has been attacking Shoigu and Gerasimov more and more bitterly in public, you know, in an effort to pressure Putin into getting rid of them. And Putin hesitated for a long time. He sat on the fence. He, he said nothing on the subject, which was making him, by the way, look increasingly weak. But of course, it was difficult for him because you know, Wagner had been built up in state propaganda as great heroes of the war. And in any case, I mean, Putin's modus operandi has often been to divide and rule as far as the Russian elites are concerned. But last week, well, first, a month ago, Prigozhin, by way of upping the pressure on Putin, but also beginning to build a political base for himself, started extending his criticism from the Russian high command to the regime in general and the Russian elites. And he was really, you know, adopting the language of Navalny, the opposition figure who's in jail, uh, about elite corruption and the decadence and lack of patriotism of the elites. And last week, uh, faced with this, Putin came off the fence, came down on the side of Shoigu and Gerasimov and issued an order that Wagner was to be subordinated to the Russian army and the defense ministry. At that point, Prigozhin's days as a significant figure were numbered because, of course, as soon as Wagner was really under the control of the defense ministry, um, they would get rid of Prigozhin. So he decided basically to bring his men out for an armed demonstration, uh, but it didn't work. So now, you know, he has gone into exile. How do you leave an armed uprising like this and then get away with it? What does that say? Or are Prigozhin's days numbered? Well, you know, I've, I've often compared it to, you understand, I don't want to compare Putin to de Gaulle. Uh, but, you know, in April 1961, the French generals in Algeria, uh, or some of them, carried out a coup or declared a coup against de Gaulle in an effort to block Algerian independence and called on the French army to, to, to support them in overthrowing the president. And de Gaulle, I mean, a little bit like Putin's address on Saturday, I have to say, came out with this very strong, in his case, of course, with tremendously greater legitimacy and moral force and rhetorical skill. But still, de Gaulle made a famous speech making absolutely clear that he would not surrender and calling on every Frenchman and every French woman to support him and not to side with or obey the rebels. Uh, and the coup collapsed. But de Gaulle, I think probably from natural instinct, but also uh, on the um, 
by agreement with loyal generals, did not severely punish any of the coup leaders. They were imprisoned for a while, but then they were let out. Some went into exile and were later pardoned. Only one officer was executed, and he had uh, you know, actually led a squad which came very close to assassinating de Gaulle himself and his wife. But you see, there was no need for Putin, once Prigozhin had indicated a willingness to surrender, to engage in mass repression. He had no nothing to gain from that. He had much to lose because, you know, having built up the ordinary Wagner fighters as heroes, you, you know, to start arresting and executing them would not have gone down well, I think, with Russian public opinion. And he has restored his authority. Now, it's a damaged authority, undoubtedly, after what has happened. Uh, but nonetheless, he has, as far as this struggle is concerned, Putin has won, hands down. I just read a Bloomberg article about how Putin is trying to look like he's in control, but he's slipping. And for a guy whose selling point is stability, Russia's looking like a banana republic, as one of the story's sources put it. Is he slipping or is he firmly in control or do we just not know at this point? As I say, I mean, he's obviously won on this occasion, clearly. And what will happen in future, we don't know. If Putin's control were really slipping so badly, then look, I mean, there's been all this talk uh, ever since the war began of possible elite conspiracies against Putin. But if they exist, or if, or rather, if they had existed on a truly large and dangerous scale, we would have known about it on Saturday, because that was the moment when they would have come out and tried to overthrow the president. But there was no sign of that. And so, you know, for the moment, he's back in charge. As I say, I mean, prestige dented, but not destroyed. You, you know, and you have to be a little bit careful, uh, I have to say, about a lot of this Western media coverage. A good deal of it is wishful thinking, you know, which comes basically out of the analysts' hatred of the Putin regime. And a, a lot also comes from talking to so-called Russian analysts, often by now resident in Washington or New York or London, who also absolutely hate Putin and the Putin regime, and basically will say whatever they think will, you know, well, they may genuinely believe it because they hate him so much, but they're not the most reliable or objective of sources, you understand. I mean, they are very much party pre. Well, a lot of the salaries he'd be paid by uh, Lockheed, right? Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. What is up with Belarus? What role did it play and what does it mean uh, that Prigogine landed there? Well, where else could he land? Um, he, he's, he's not going to emigrate to the West, is he? And he, he needed to go somewhere where Putin could keep him under wraps, but where Prigozhin would feel safe. That narrows the field very, very considerably. If it could, or whatever it was, had gone on for longer and there'd been longer negotiations, then you know perhaps Prigozhin would have ended up, I don't know, maybe in China. But as it was... Belarus was the was the obvious place to go, and Lukashenko played a role. Although I'm not sure that he played as big a role as Lukashenko is claiming, because he would say that, wouldn't he? Uh, but clearly, Lukashenko did play a role in uh, you know negotiating Prigozhin's surrender and exit, and will now keep uh, an eye on him. One assumes, although I mean, of course, nothing is certain. I mean, perhaps Prigozhin will start really running as an opposition figure from Belarus. Although uh, I somewhat doubt that, because from Prigozhin's point of view, there's a lot to be said now for keeping his head down for the moment and then trying to come back later. Because uh, if he goes on now, then he has absolutely declared himself an enemy of Putin. And, uh, well, I mean, obviously, Putin would then put great pressure on Lukashenko to um, squash him. I'm speaking with Anatole Levin, director of the Eurasia program at the Quincy Institute. Is there a credible alternative to Putin, or even a not-so-credible one, but any kind of alternative to Putin at this point? Well, I mean, that is what every Russian I've talked to has said, You know, including many who by now deeply dislike the Putin regime, but on the other hand are sober analysts, shall we say, not, not carried away by their hatreds. And the, the, the question is, yes, by now it would be a excellent thing for Putin to go. Um, he should, you know, he's supposed to stand for re-election again next March. 
far better if he handed over to somebody else. But then the immediate question is, but who? Because Putin's immediate cronies are all of them deeply discredited by their role in the you know in the Ukraine war. You know, Patrushev, the intelligence chief, I mean, if more than anything else, this was an intelligence failure. You know, Shoigu, the defense minister, who who sent in an inadequate, badly trained, badly prepared army with a ridiculous, you know, strategic plan. There are sort of more neutral, shall we say, and colorless candidates who could be accepted perhaps by all the different factions in the regime. If Putin dropped dead or were killed tomorrow, the man who would succeed, according to the constitution, is the prime minister, Mishustin. But he's an economist with very little public persona or prestige in uh, uh, the country as a whole. I mean, another name that is often mentioned is Sabyanin, the mayor of Moscow. But Moscow is not very popular in Russia as a whole. I mean, Putin himself has spent much of his career running against Moscow, a bit like, you know, Trump running against Washington, however, hypocritically. And also, uh, it's not at all clear, and this is deeply feared by the Russian elites themselves, that either um, Sabyanin or, or Mishustin, you know, would have the personal strength to be able to prevent all the different factions of the Russian elites and establishment tearing each other apart once Putin had gone. So it's a very difficult one. And I think, you know, the paradoxical effect of what happened this weekend is that on the one hand, it makes Putin look weaker. But on the other hand, by, you know, highlighting the divisions within the elites, it, it also makes him look in a way more indispensable to the Russian establishment. Those elites, I mean, we've talked about this before, but um, these elites are not like Western elites that have power base, independent power base in the economy, capitalist class in a, in a Western society. They're largely creatures of the state, and Putin and the people around him are really the ones or, or who are the ruling class. So what does it matter what elite opinion is? I mean, what, what exactly uh, is this elite? And does it have that much power over the political sphere? Or um, is the political sphere kind of independent? The point is that, of course, you know, the, the, the top Russian elites are, are, as you say, well, I wouldn't say they're creatures of the state. They are, uh, what's the phrase in biology? They are kind of outgrowths of the state. Uh, but, I mean, at the same time, I mean, a bit like barons in the Middle Ages, you know, you can see Putin coming to power, uh, you know, with the support of a group of barons uh, who largely from, of course, the former KGB or linked to it, uh, who he then rewarded with, you know, in medieval terms, the lands, you know, and offices of their rivals. But that doesn't mean that this was a cohesive group or that they all loved each other. Um, after all, Prigozhin was to a great extent a creation of the state and of Putin. But all of these people are very ambitious, very greedy, very ruthless men who in many cases hate each other or are deep rivals of each other. By now, they do have independent or at least autonomous power bases. And of course, Putin, Putin can get rid of them. But how many of them can he get rid of at one go, if you see what I mean? Because a lot of these figures by now, you know, running the the great state companies and oil companies and so forth, are, of course, immensely wealthy and have networks of connections, you know, through the secret services and the state and the provinces. So they, they are figures in their own right by now. But on the other hand, and I think this was probably also true of Prigozhin, I think that they are united by one thing. I think that they do probably all of them, certainly the ones I've come into contact with and know something of, regard themselves as Russian patriots. They would really, really not want to allow their inter- their, the feuds between them or jealousies or ambitions to lead to outright Russian defeat in Ukraine. An absolute you know, key and obvious point in Putin's speech on Saturday was, look, if this goes on, we're going to lose in Ukraine. Which, which is true, they would have lost if, if there'd been a civil war, even a limited civil war. 
no would-be Russian leader or successor to Putin, at least not one with any sense, wants to inherit defeat. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that they, that many of them by now, possibly even Putin himself, uh, would not be willing to accept a compromise peace, maybe even a ceasefire along existing battle lines. But defeat, complete defeat and, and complete retreat from Ukraine, including Crimea, no. I, I don't. I don't think there is a single person in the in the Russian establishment who would agree to that. How is the war going? Uh, Ukraine is saying it's only just begun its counteroffensive, but uh, yeah, there are signs in the U.S. media that uh, maybe things aren't going so well. But of course, it's buried under the usual reticence. What do we know about how things are going? As to how they have gone so far, we we know that the Ukrainians have made very slow and limited progress. Now, something may just have happened, which could transform things, which is that there have been reports, though, uh, as far as I know, so far unconfirmed, uh, that the Ukrainians have crossed the Dnieper River, uh, you know, where the reservoir used to be, which, of course, has now been drained by the um, blowing up of the dam, and have established a a beachhead uh, on the eastern Russian-held side. Now, I mean, at first, I should say, and look, I I myself would never say for sure who blew up that dam. But if, in fact, it is the Ukrainians who have taken advantage of it, uh, I think that should be yet another uh, of many, many occasions in which much of the Western media uh, should not have rushed quite so quickly into blaming Russia with no evidence at all. You should wait and see, and above all, I mean, not say anything definitely unless you have actual evidence of it. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is, I mean, if if the Ukrainians have done that and they can radically expand that beachhead and outflank the Russians on their left, then that could transform the situation. But of course, beachheads are very tricky things. The the Russians were forced out of Kherson uh, last autumn um, because they had a beachhead which could o- only be supplied over very endangered bridges under constant bombardment. And eventually they had to give it up. So we'll have to see. But I think that's the critical thing, because apart from that, I mean, on the whole, military history suggests that if you don't break through quickly and it turns into a war of attrition, uh, or a battle of attrition, you know, the Somme, Passchendaele, Ypres, uh, then you're unlikely to break through in three months, uh, unless the other side is completely exhausted, as the Germans were by August 1918, and the Austrians even more so, and or you have colossal superiority in men and materiel, which the Ukrainians don't. So on the whole, it seems to be tending towards a continued stalemate, but, you know, I'm not making any definite predictions because we've been surprised so often in the past. And, you know, we will have to see what happens in the weeks and months to come. The blob, the U.S. foreign policy establishment, is it happy? Does it want civil war in Russia? Oh, Seems sure. a rather scary prospect to me, but I'm, maybe I'm just not privy to their higher strategic consciousness. <laughs> I think when you use, well, sorry, I mustn't be too rude. Look, I mean, there are clearly elements of the blob who are yearning for a Russian civil war and the destruction of Russia. Um, obviously, I mean, it would eliminate a major US rival, e- even though, I mean, given the weakness demonstrated by the Russian army um, and given you know, just, just the you know, comparative economic figures, uh, population figures, everything else, it's very hard to see Russia as a as any kind of systemic threat to the United States. But on the other hand, R- Russia is a useful partner of China. I mean, undoubtedly, and the Chinese are very well aware of this, if Russia were to disintegrate as a state, China would be seriously weakened. It would be considerably isolated on the world stage. And of course, China's energy security would take a colossal blow if you know overland supplies from Russia were cut. So yes, I mean, there are elements. And of course, you know, if you read people in the Atlantic Monthly and elsewhere, they're completely candid about their desire, you know, that Russia should lose completely in order that Russia should be gravely weakened or broken up. However, not everybody has vanished from the US establishment, uh, you know, who worries uh, both about nuclear war, but also, of course, about loose nukes. Uh, I mean, I sometimes feel immensely old 
I mean, perhaps you, you and I, Doug, a, a, a tiny handful of people uh, who even remember what it was like in Washington 20 years ago when nobody could talk about anything. But, you know, the threat of nuclear weapons going astray and finding their way into the hands of rogue regimes and terrorists and how many, how many um, you know, aspiring think tank hacks and others made little careers for themselves by blabbering about that incessantly. Um, now, of course, the great bulk of the uh, Washington establishment seems to have forgotten that completely, but not everybody has. And, you know, obviously, I mean, when the Soviet Union broke up, absolutely rightly, the, the then Bush administration was deeply, deeply concerned about all of this and stepped in you know, in a pretty determined fashion to secure the nuclear weapons and and also um, precisely not to encourage the breakup of Russia itself. Now, I am sure that someone like Bill Burns at the CIA, you know, former ambassador to Moscow, author of a, of a, a memoir which rather amazingly trashes the entire case for NATO expansion, um, though, of course, that was written before he became head of the CIA. Now, I'm sure that he uh, and you know, his immediate advisors are deeply aware of the dangers and, you know, would oppose any such policy. But I am by no means sure of other elements within the um, the Biden administration, let alone <laughs> Victoria Newland, for example, let alone obviously wider elements within the blob as a whole. Finally, what at this point is the prospect for negotiations? It seems fairly hopeless. Both sides seem very dug in. The U.S. Uh, looks like it wants to grind Russia down. Um, so it doesn't seem very likely they'd endorse negotiations. So where are we now? Well, in the end, of course, it will depend on what happens on the battlefield. I mean, if we still have a stalemate come the autumn, and you know, we would then be looking at continuing the war next year, two voices will be strengthened in the West. Uh, one will be the voices which will say, look, this isn't going anywhere. And of course, for every year the war goes on, I mean, apart from the risk of escalation and the growing you know, unpopularity of the West elsewhere in the world, you know, you're putting off indefinitely the time when you know, we can start to reconstruct Ukraine and uh, you know, actually help Ukraine move towards the West. The other voice that will be strengthened are those who say, oh, no, now we must um, pour even more weapons into Ukraine. And even maybe, yet again, the voices will start saying we need a, you know, to send in NATO air forces and so forth. One possibility, I mean, there is speculation about this in Moscow, but I don't know whether it will come to anything, uh, is that not now, because uh, that would show fear and weakness, which he won't do. But if, if in fact, in the autumn, we, we're still looking at a stalemate and the Ukrainians have not broken through, that the Russian government, saying that it was respecting the wishes of Indonesia, Brazil, India, China, South Africa, the world, basically, would offer a ceasefire along the existing battle lines and negotiations without preconditions. Now, of course, the Ukrainian government would reject that outright. In present circumstances, it would put the Biden administration in a difficult position. It would put the Germans and the French in a very difficult position, which is why, of course, one imagines that it could could be possible. I know no serious Russian analysts in private who now think that Russia can possibly conquer the whole of Ukraine, or even barring essentially the, the complete collapse of the United States and NATO which hardly seems likely, win much more territory in Ukraine than it has now. But equally, I don't know anyone in anything that could be regarded as the Russian establishment uh, who would surrender Crimea and eastern Donbass. Uh, and that is you know, what at present the Ukrainians and, to judge by British and Polish rhetoric, and at least some of the language coming out of the Biden administration, that that is what um, the West is aiming at. It's certainly what the Ukrainians are aiming at. And a Russian government will not agree to that. It's, it's just not going to happen. That was Anatole Levin, director of the Eurasia program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. As I was preparing this show, news arrived of the detention of General Sergei Sorovkin, the deputy commander of Russia's invasion force in Ukraine and head of its aerospace force. It's not clear whether Sorovkin, who is close to Prigozhin, is just being questioned or is under suspicion of being a co-conspirator in the uprising. 
Sorovkin had been critical of the conduct of the war, leading Putin to demote him from top commander in Ukraine to deputy. Quoting a Financial Times report, many of the hardliners who have been known to sympathize with Wagner and criticize the regular armed forces have disappeared from view in recent days, while loyalists such as Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu, whom Prigozhin hoped to unseat in his coup, have been given a platform and have been shown in public participating at high-level meetings and events. That's uh, the end of the FT quote. It looks like Putin is cleaning house and reminding everyone who's in charge. I asked Anatole Levin for a quick comment this morning. His response, we should be cautious. I'm sure that Sorovkin is being investigated for his close links to Wagner, but since he did publicly oppose the coup and played a key part in rallying soldiers to stay loyal to Putin, it seems unlikely he will be severely punished. Developing, as Matt Drudge likes to say. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Mercenaries are useless, disunited, unfaithful. They have nothing more to keep them in a battle other than a meager wage, which is just about enough to make them want to kill for you, but not enough to make them want to die for you. Some of Mercenaries Ready for War by John Cale. I cut that up some, segueing from the spoken intro, a paraphrase of a passage from Machiavelli, which is more succinct than the original, to the bit about moving on to Moscow to attack the Kremlin. Next, the Confederate diaspora. At the end of the Civil War, there was a movement out of the South. A new National Bureau of Economic Research paper looks at the long-term effects of those migrants on the recipient communities. The effects were profound and lasting. As the abstract of the paper puts it, these migrants lay the groundwork for Confederate symbols and racial norms to become pervasive nationally in the early 20th century. Beyond memorializing the Confederacy, migrants exacerbated racial violence, boosted novel forms of exclusion, and compounded black disadvantage outside the South. The diaspora legacy persists over the long run, shaping racial inequities in labor, housing, and policing. That's the end of the quote from the abstract. Hereth Moore is one of the five co-authors of the paper, Samuel Bazzi. He's an associate professor at the University of California, San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy. Samuel Bazzi. How big was this diaspora? The Confederate diaspora, as we're uh, calling it, our best estimates, and you know, we're working with historical census data, so of course there's going to be a bit, uh, a bit of noise and, and measurement error, but our best estimates suggest that upwards of around 1 million Southern whites left the American South, the former Confederate states and allied territory in Oklahoma, um, between about 1870 and 1900. So we're talking about a million people. Um, and within that, we're able to estimate that roughly 60,000 uh, former uh, enslavers, former slaveholders, and about another 120,000 or so of their uh, household kin within that broader uh, set of, uh, of white migrants out of the South in that 30-year period right after the end of the Civil War. And then where did they tend to go, both regions and the types of communities they settled in? They largely went West, basically. I mean, of course, they went to border states, um, which uh, were naturally the, the most proximate destinations uh, for those leaving, uh, leaving the former Confederacy. But they really, uh, if, you, if you stare at a map, uh, they really seem to have gravitated uh, out West and largely avoided uh, you know, the heart of uh, former Union territory um, up in New England and kind of the upper Midwest but really uh, seem to have, have, have settled by and large and in a lot of what at the time was, uh, was the American frontier. Uh, really a lot of places that were being newly incorporated um, and uh, as the country was, uh, was really pushing westward. And the kind of communities? 
kind of community. So it, it varied. Um, some of them were, uh, were settling in, uh, in larger established towns, uh, mining towns throughout the West, but a, a lot of them were really settling in nascent communities, places that uh, had some viable agricultural land uh, or other potential resources for, uh, for new kind of fresh economic activities and really playing a big role in many places that uh, for the first time were receiving, you know, large influxes of, uh, of white settlers from all over America, but, but in, in this case, uh, from, uh, from the American South, which had just been devastated, of course, during, uh, during the, the many battles of, uh, of the American Civil War. And a lot of them chose occupations that put them in positions of influence. That's right. Um, and so if you compare the kind of average Southerner to anyone else living uh, in these uh, communities where they settled, they tended to be overrepresented in what we're calling positions of authority, right? So think about lawyers and judges, think about uh, local uh, officials working in public administration, think about your local religious leaders. And so you can really see this kind of outsized presence of these uh, members of the, the Confederate diaspora. And within that, we can even dig deeper and see that former uh, enslavers were even more likely to be uh, kind of taking on these, these positions of authority in these, uh, in these new communities where they settled. And a lot of the places where they settled uh, were pretty thinly populated by white people, meaning that they really had a hand in establishing institutions and norms, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and so I think part of that comes from the fact that a lot of these communities uh, were, were really nascent in terms of the uh, local institutions, in terms of official kind of arms of, uh, of government, arms of the state. A lot of these were being built up for the first time, and especially in these, in these frontier communities. Um, and so we're able to actually show that the kind of strongest influence of, uh, of the Confederate diaspora really shows up in these communities that were on the American frontier and that were at the time very low density at the end of the, the Civil War in the 1860s and were just a kind of primed to, to receive this large influx of uh, settlers pushing the country, uh, the country westward. That's really where they were having the biggest impact, um, but you can see, see their, their influence across the board. Um, one place where you don't see a very strong impact uh, of these migrants from the South is in communities and counties uh, that had a, a really large share of the male population having fought in, uh, in the Union Army during the Civil War. And so you could imagine that those types of places, the Union soldiers who survived, and certainly their families who uh, may have uh, outlived them, uh, would have potentially resisted some of that uh, Confederate cultural influence that came with these migrants from, from the South. Okay, speaking of that Confederate culture, how do you define and measure it? So we're really thinking about um, two key symbolic expressions of, uh, of, of Confederate culture, one being uh, just efforts to memorialize the Confederacy. Um, and so here you could think about the planting of a, a Confederate flag in public space, um, but more concretely, things we can measure like uh, the construction of uh, memorials to former Confederate heroes, the naming of, uh, of places, of, of towns, of, uh, of rivers and streams and, uh, and buildings and schools, uh, naming those places after uh, Confederate leaders. Um, so that's one kind of important dimension. Uh, the second is uh, the formation and establishment of a really important organization um, in perpetuating the memory of the Confederacy and kind of revising the history of the of the Civil War and painting the Confederacy in a much more favorable light, and that's the the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And this is an organization, um, sort of exactly what it sounds like, which is the female family members of former Confederate uh, soldiers and 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 leaders. Um, who really built this organization that was trying to propagate uh, the so-called lost cause uh, ideology, lost cause narrative, which is the set of revisionist narratives that really tried to paint the Confederate secession in a, in a much more noble uh, light. But of course, this ideology was also full of a, a bunch of racist, white supremacist tropes. Uh, that really accompanied a lot of that, uh, a lot of that history. So that's on the really kind of symbolic side, if, if we can call it that. 
And then in terms of uh, much more kind of material expressions of, uh, of Confederate, uh, this is more along the lines of, of, of racial norms. Here, what we're doing is measuring the uh, establishment of the second Ku Klux Klan uh, in the early 1900s. So the formation of, uh, of a KKK chapter in, in, your, in your community. Um, the second KKK originated in Georgia, um, not far from, uh, from, from Atlanta, and was really in many ways a continuation of, uh, of some of the racial uh, violence and, and mobilization, uh, white supremacist mobilization that took place uh, in the aftermath of the war with the first Ku Klux Klan, which was really kind of a, a, an insurgent organization fighting against federal occupation of, of the South after the war. Um, but of course, engaging in all kinds of, uh, of racial terror along the way. And so that second KKK emerged in, the, in 1915 uh, and the years thereafter spread across America. And of course, was, was uh, originally concentrated in the South, uh, in the former Confederate States, but then spread quite rapidly. And so uh, that's another element of what we're calling Confederate culture. And then finally, thinking about uh, the kind of most extreme forms of, uh, of racial violence in, uh, in the form of lynching of black populations. And that, of course, is something that one finds across America. Um, it is uh, much, historically much more common uh, within the South. Um, and it's something that we can see empirically emerging uh, at much higher frequency in communities that were uh, largely settled um, or disproportionately settled by um, the uh, Confederate diaspora. I'm speaking with the economist Samuel Bazzi, co-author of a paper on the effects of the Confederate diaspora. I noticed looking through some of the graphs in your paper that or you just mentioned this to some degree, that there was a real upsurge in these manifestations of a Confederate or neo-Confederate culture in the 1920s. What was going on there? What, uh, what caused that? Was there D.W. Griffith's uh, Birth of a Nation, 1915, I guess got a lot of it going, but then it really continued in the next decade, 60 years after the end of the Civil War. Yeah, the, the, the birth of a nation, I think, uh, is, is really, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of shocking how powerful a force that, uh, that film was. Um, and there's actually a couple of nice, uh, very new and, and recent papers by some economists basically bearing out empirically what a, a lot of the historians have said in terms of the power of that movie and diffusing a lot of the, these neo-Confederate ideology and, uh, and, and propagating kind of the rise of the KKK and racial violence. And so I think I really do think that was key in many ways. And the other thing to kind of keep in mind is that this is, it, it's kind of dovetailing the an, uh, racial animus towards towards black populations is kind of dovetailing with other elements of uh, animus within the KKK, really targeting um, Catholic and immigrants from certain parts of Southern Europe. And so I think that's part of the kind of upsurge. And so in different places in the U.S., you're, you're seeing it, it, it take different forms, targeting different populations, but really kind of coalescing around uh, this uh, in many ways, uh, white supremacist ideology and view of what uh, what what America should be as 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 a white nation, um, and so I think that that was certainly an important force. And the other thing that we perhaps could illuminate a bit more in the paper is the role of what's what's happening in in the White House at the, at the time. Um, and Woodrow Wilson, who of course has uh, his own uh, notorious history, happens to have Virginia uh, roots himself. Um, and uh, was the first president to screen a film in the White House, and that film happened to be The Birth of a Nation. And so there's, of course, a much more sordid and, and longer history to tell about Wilson's uh, racial views and, and, and policies or lack thereof. Um, but I think, you know, that was certainly an important uh, element at, at the national level uh, in, in perhaps reflecting, but also reinforcing a lot of what's happening locally in, in various parts of, uh, of, of the U.S. So, so you found in a lot of these recipient uh, areas, uh, counties, communities, really significant increases in lynchings, um, uh, incarceration rates, you know, just real material evidence of a much more racist culture than surrounding areas that didn't necessarily have that, that level of uh, Confederate uh, penetration. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's certainly uh, something that, uh, that we, you know, as, as economists are, you know, we're in many ways bringing data to a lot of what uh, historians have, uh, have, have told and, and kind of carefully documented themselves. But really what we're able to, to do is trace out a, a 
a direct um, causal link between this influx of migrants from uh, from the former Confederate states uh, and see this this increase, subsequent increase in uh, in racial violence and uh, Confederate memorialization um, and really the propagation of a set of institutions and, and cultural norms that were very unfavorable to uh, to put it mildly, to uh, to black populations, and that, of course, uh, at this early stage of uh, of institutional development, can can have uh, profound implications for the subsequent evolution of culture and uh, and and kind of norms and, and institutional uh, practices in uh, in these places. And you also uh, mentioned sundown towns. Yeah, this is uh, something that, you know, I grew up in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, and as far as I can recall, I don't remember uh, ever learning anything about sundown towns throughout my uh, my educational life. And I think that's something that probably holds for, for most Americans. Um, and this is uh, an institution that, to our understanding, emerged in actually in the Western United States, originally targeting Chinese populations uh, uh, in California and elsewhere in the West. And then kind of spread elsewhere, targeting different populations. Um, but the, the institution really kind of took off in, in the early 1900s, targeting uh, black populations in particular. And this was really happening outside the South, where, uh, you know, within the South, there were, of course, a number of highly institutionalized forms of, uh, of segregation uh, that certainly prescribed uh, different types of, uh, of, of behavior and places uh, to which uh, blacks and whites could could frequent in public spaces. Those sort of uh, laws enshrined in, uh, in in the Jim Crow South are are something that weren't available and and pervasive outside of the South. And instead, outside of the South, these more informal norms of uh, of racial uh, expulsion and 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 subsequent exclusion um, and prevention of of blacks and other minorities from living within town limits after uh, after the sun goes down. That institution really spread throughout uh, America in the in the early 1900s, all the way through the middle of the of the 20th century. And what we're able to see is that the Confederate diaspora really kind of hastened the diffusion of uh, of this norm of, uh, of of excluding minorities from uh, from from these towns. You know, what we're able to to do is highlight the, the way in which this white migrant population from the South really changed the racial geography of uh, of america in the in the 20th century um and link the the influx of uh, of these migrants to the subsequent depopulation of minorities from uh from towns and even counties at large across the US and the maps in the paper are interesting uh, looking at the concentrations uh, of the southern diaspora um Southern California is important, which Southern California was important in right-wing American politics you know, in the 50s and 60s, maybe not so much now, but it was then. And the Pacific Northwest, which uh, is now a very uh, significant hotbed of white supremacy. So you can see these effects persisting for over a century afterwards. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think a lot of that persistence is in some ways, you know, maybe not surprising to people who live in some of these places, but but to see it so systematically, um, and and to have such uh, such deep roots uh, in uh, in in the distant past, I think is something that uh, you know we're hoping our our work is going to bring to light and hopefully kind of uh, provide a new point of departure for conversations about. Uh, about how deeply entrenched some of these norms are in local culture and institutions. And hopefully from there, uh, conversations, uh, you know, we can have more frank uh, conversations about the way forward uh, in, in, in advancing uh, racial justice. And a lot of the effects on, uh, on social indicators, measurable social indicators persist into the present as well, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So, um, you know, one, one thing we're able to see is as early as the 20, in the early 1900s, we're able to kind of trace out a distinct influence of former slaveholders in particular working in these positions of authority and, and creating uh, adverse outcomes uh, in the form of higher out incarceration rates for, for black men in the early 20th century. And then if we kind of trace that forward all the way to um, you know, modern data on racial gaps in incarceration, we still see that uh, kind of persistent legacy going back to the, the early Confederate diaspora and, and, and especially to 
um, the former enslavers uh, within that diaspora. Um, and so it, it materializes in the, in, in the, in the carceral state and in, in racial gaps in incarceration, as well as in greater inequity in, uh, in, in, in the labor market in terms of uh, racial wage inequality, um, and in terms of uh, persistent racial segregation, which is, of course, has its roots in a number of forces and kind of practices and that, that differ in, in urban and, and rural America, but are certainly part and parcel of that early legacy of these white settlers from the South. And finally, what does your work say about the claim that Confederate nostalgia is about heritage and not hate? Yeah, that's a that's the, the tough question, I think. But certainly, as far as, uh, as our empirical findings are concerned, they seem to go hand in hand. Um, and so it's very, I would say, very difficult to look at our findings and suggest that there's somehow a distinction between uh, a benign effort to memorialize one's fallen ancestors and the very real uh, and uh, and persistent effects of these racially divisive figures and, and institutions from the from the, the former Confederacy, the role they're having in public spaces and in the the minds of uh, of local residents and, and, and citizens of these communities, you do see this tight connection. In recent the past year or two, there's been a number of efforts to kind of understand what happens when some of these monuments are removed. Um, it, do we see changes in in racial attitudes? Do we see changes in uh, other forms of, uh, of racial inequity. Um, and so I think that work, the, you know, is still very much in progress, but um, I'm excited about what we're going to learn from, uh, from, from hopefully more of these removals of these divisive monuments and, and iconography across the U.S. That was Samuel Bazzi, Associate Professor at the University of California, San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy, and one of the co-authors of a National Bureau of Economic Research paper on the long-term effects of the Confederate diaspora. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this. Some more John Cale. This is a cover of that great LCD sound system song, All My Friends. Till next week, bye.